1: Hi, everyone. and Welcome back to New New Books and Genocide Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Jeff Bachman, a senior lecturer at the American University School of International Service. Thank you all for listening. Today, I'll be talking to Timothy Williams about his important new book, The Complexity of Evil, Perpetration and Genocide, published by Rutgers University Press in December of last year. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Of course. Thank you for being here. Can you start us off uh, by telling our listeners a bit about yourself?
0: Yeah, uh, I'd love to. Uh, I am a a junior professor of insecurity and social order at the uh, University of the Bundeswehr uh, in Germany, um, where I uh, have been based uh, most of my life uh, in Germany, uh, even though, as you can probably tell by my accent, I was born in the UK. Uh, But I went through uni in both the UK and Germany and did my PhD and postdoc here in Germany. Uh, yeah, and I've been at this institution for about a year and a half now
1: thanks Tim um, and just to, to, to clarify you said uh, you mentioned insecurity in your title is that right um, and I asked you know primarily because you know that seems like the reverse framing of most jobs that talk about security
0: it is um, I it's an interesting uh, framing I guess I, I think that it's um, quite for, for me in my research, I think it's quite a useful and uh, interesting framing because uh, doing work on mass violence and on genocide um, and on participation in it, it's often the insecurity which is uh, much more interesting to me than uh, the uh, the conceptions of security. Um, and uh, I'm a political scientist by training um, and sort of work in the field of um Genocide studies, uh, international relations, conflict studies, but I think that the, uh, the the concept of security studies and the discussions here are obviously very relevant. But for me, in the sort of the the, the titular uh, nature of, of my professorship being in security, uh, it resonates much more strongly uh, with me. I didn't choose it, but I was uh, <laughs> uh, happy to apply for it when I when I uh, <laughs>
1: saw the job. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Tim. Um, you know, I like to ask my guests how they came to write their book. Uh, why is perpetrator research important? How did you come to this research? And are there any scholars of um, that have influenced your research? Yeah, I... I think that
0: the, the main reason why I think that perpetrator research is so important is because we can really only understand um, violence and genocide and the dynamics that it takes on if we go into the micro level and look at the dynamics of individual perpetrators um, and to try and understand and to disaggregate the larger phenomenon of violence into its individual parts. And so, part of that is obviously um, looking at, at these acts and. W- in previous research, we've obviously there's obviously um, a lot of uh, perceptions of victims uh, which flow into genocide studies traditionally uh, in the in the sort of founding years of genocide studies, um, and it's it I think it's really good that this is sort of complemented by perpetrator studies because while normatively obviously it's much more problematic um, what the perpetrators have done to really understand uh, the phenomenon, uh, it's important and this is then also important for any Uh, attempt, I would say, at prevention, we also need to understand uh, how this works at a disaggregated level. And so with this interest in perpetrators, I um, I realized that a lot of work was being done in various different disciplines, um, in various different cases, but often that weren't communicating with each other. So some of my, uh, you were asking about influential scholars, uh, um, Jim Waller's um, uh, book, Becoming Evil, I thought was really inspiring. Um, and looking at how perpetrators uh come to be perpetrators, how they decide to participate from a psychological perspective. Um, uh, but it sort of, it, it leaves out many of the other sorts of factors that could be relevant um, and that are talked about in other parts of the literature. Um, and at the same time, people's amazing work like Leanne Fuji's Killing Neighbors or Strauss's Order of Genocide or McDoom's work is a, a really amazing studies about Rwanda, but they speak so wonderfully also to studies of the Holocaust like Christopher Browning and others, Um, but they don't necessarily communicate with each other. And so the idea was to try and bring these different literatures into conversation with each other and to try and see what can we learn from these different disciplines, from these different cases, Um, and if we bring that together. So something more abstract, something which works in different cases. And then uh, I uh, obviously wanted to contribute empirically as well by um, looking at another case study, which is very different. Um, and so I selected the case study of Cambodia. Um, and that's really how the book sort of came to be, that I wanted to yeah, try and try and bring a lot of the things together that already existed and then try it out on a new case.
1: Thanks, Tim. And um, yeah, I wanted to talk a, a bit about the, the packing, packaging of your book. But before we, we do that, since you, you mentioned about um, bringing the literatures together and have them speak to each other, how, how is the complexity of evil model different from uh, other tools of analysis that preceded it? And how does it build off of uh, these, um, these approaches that existed prior to it? And um, also, what are the different levels of analysis um, that you bring into interaction uh, the different categories of motivations, the facilitative factors and the contextual conditions. I know that's that was a lot of questions in one, um, but I'll, I'll turn it over to you. Um, it's different from previous literature um, because similar
0: to Waller, it tries to be holistic, uh, bringing different kinds of um, factors together um, and, and that it's agnostic to cases. But it goes beyond Waller's focus on psychology. Um, and so it... it i would say that's sort of the main thing that it differentiates from the literature but what it really adds is that um, it looks for a more deeply embedded causal reasoning Um, and so this is how uh, i came up with this this differentiation between motivations, facilitative factors, and contextual conditions. Um, Because I say that motivations are basically the actual impetus for people to participate uh, in genocide. So it's the actual causal uh, reason for someone to participate. Um, Whereas other factors are only facilitative. That means that they only really come to work if there is a motivation already there. Now, this differentiation is not made at all in the literature otherwise. And I think that that's problematic because it means that some factors are sold as motivations, even though actually they, they're they not the reason someone's participating, even though they're making it easier. And then we have contextual conditions, which, again, are not necessarily differentiated in the literature. And this is more of a, uh, these are more factors that that. Are con- well, they're contextual, they're societal, often or situational, and they they construct a framework within which um, people are acting, and it impacts how certain motivations can come to the fore in these certain situations. Uh, I can maybe exemplify this with um, the idea of ideology, because in the book I argue that ideology actually uh, can be all three of these factors, um, and so, but. The, It has a different meaning in each of these. So ideology can be a motivation. Um, So we do see that there are people uh, in the Holocaust who are anti-Semitic and they're participating because of uh, a hatred for the Jews and they want to um, eradicate Jews. Uh, Or in Cambodia, uh, because they genuinely want to eradicate uh, political enemies. Um, but actually, and i 'm not the first person to say this, but most people who participate are not ideologically motivated in that sense that 's not necessarily the reason. Uh, I identify many other reasons uh, in in my book, uh, which I can maybe talk about a little bit in a second but instead, ideology is very often a facilitative factor in the sense that um, it makes it easier. it provides a justification and a legitimation um, that psychologically uh either renders the uh the victim uh more distant uh dehumanizes them uh or it makes the killing uh seem more legitimate and as such it it's not enough for someone uh to, to kill someone just because they see it as legitimate, but it um, makes it mu- makes other motivations uh, much more easy to uh, implement uh, when when it's there, and also ideologies function as conte- can function as contextual conditions um, as the the larger worldviews the larger ideologies which frame the entire situation which render the uh, the context uh, that people are uh, acting in meaningful and it 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 says who are we and who are they uh, the we versus us uh, sorry uh, we versus them uh, differentiation uh, it, it creates uh, threatening uh, attributes uh, for for people who one can then victimize and so on and so forth and so by differentiating causally i think that we can get a much more nuanced understanding of uh these factors um I said that I'd maybe say a little bit briefly about the different types of motivations that I identify. Um, Mm -hmm. Basically within within the category of motivations, I think there are three main uh, types of motivations that we have. The first one are in-group motivations. And this is one of the most important types of motivations because it's all about dynamics within the perpetrator group. It has absolutely nothing to do with the victims, but it has uh, to do with um, v- hierarchical structures, authority. Um, it has to do with uh, peer pressures or wanting to be conform with the group, uh, taking on specific roles within, uh, within a situation. Um, or wanting to, uh, to, to gain status. And these are kinds of motivations that uh, we can see in other uh, parts of, of life uh, as well. Obviously group dynamics, a lot of these are social psychological um, and sociological, um, but they, they don't have anything to, to begin with really to do with the, the, uh, the victim group. The second type of motivation are outgroup focused motivations, so to do with the victim group. And these can be the ideological motivations I was speaking of or emotional reactions to uh, victims. So fear of the victim group, uh, hatred towards them, or anger. Um, and th- these outgroup focused motivations are empirically the type of motivation that we find least often. Um, Uh, And the third, which, again, similar to in-group motivations, is uh, empirically very broadly found, are what I call opportunistic motivations. So all kinds of motivations that mean that the perpetrator expects to gain some kind of benefit from their action, from their perpetration um and so this can be anything from uh economic motivations where people uh hope to be able to loot um and uh, and steal from the victim group um they can have career motivations uh, that they uh, hope to be uh, to re- receive a promotion if they participate uh, and kill uh, personal conflicts uh, that are where someone kills someone from the victim group because of some animosity that they have towards the person as that individual person, which has actually nothing to do with the genocide um, itself. And here we have a whole host of different uh, motivations that where people believe that they can gain something from it. Um, and so I try and differentiate here between a little bit more in a structured way, what kinds of, what are the fundamental mechanisms uh, behind these motivations? And then differentiate those, as I said, from facilitative factors. Um, maybe one final word um, of what, how this differentiates from other types of approaches. It's probably become quite clear from the way I describe the model that I see the fundamental basis for analysis as coming from the action that is perpetrated, rather than from the role of perpetrator as such. Um, I, this is because. I see perpetrator more as a, as a social construction, something that we attribute um, and to an individual because of the actions they've engaged in. And thus, I think that by focusing on individual actions, we can say for a specific point in time why an individual is engaging in a specific action. And their motivations can then change over time. It means that uh, just because someone is motivated uh, to kill for... A uh, career uh, motivations today, tomorrow it could be because of in-group pressures, and we can model this um, this dynamism much uh, more strongly. And it also allows us to understand how people at some points will maybe perpetrate, and at other points in time will maybe then rescue uh, or be bystanders. And it allows this complexity to come out much more clearly.
1: Thanks, Tim. And you know, one of the things I'm thinking of uh, from your book and 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 your your discussion of it. Is where does it sort of fit with um, you know those who believe in uh, I guess the the I don't know, the the very rigid understanding of specific genocidal intent? Um, you know, when you're talking about all these different potential motivations, does this in any way um, differ from how genocide studies, or, or um, I guess a, a good portion of genocide studies, views genocidal intent? I wouldn't say so.
0: Um, I think that intent um, is important, but it doesn't mean that in the individual action uh, of perpetration, intent necessarily needs to be quite so clear. So what I mean by this is that People are participating in genocide uh, as part of a, a, a larger movement. And similar to social movement studies, where people who go to protest, for instance, can be there for all sorts of reasons, but they're still part of the protest, they're still part of a, uh, of a, of a movement, um, it, they're buying into something uh, larger, even if that's not necessarily always um, part of... Uh, it doesn't need to be a, an ideological uh, belief that they have uh, and that they are acting upon. And so the intent the is much more a sort of a knowledge-based uh, understanding of intent and that people are participating as part of this group and part of a phenomenon.
1: Um,
0: and for for the genocide, for, for, for this action, which is then sort of aggregated to uh, the genocide, the intent is necessary um in that the the victims need to be seen as a as a group that is supposed to be eliminated and these ideologies are mm-hmm. very important um for justifying the action um even if i'm not even if i argue that this isn't necessarily the foundation for uh, people's individual motivations um for engaging in that action
1: right and You know, a related question, Um, you note in your book that you disregard theories of ancient ethnic hatred, instead seeing ethnicity as a potential sorting mechanism. Um, Anything you want to discuss about that? And have you encountered any resistance to this approach? To be honest, not as much
0: resistance as I would maybe have expected um, when I started writing the book. Um, Because I think that... um, Within genocide studies, this idea of ancient ethnic hatreds is not really um, particularly uh, accepted uh, by most researchers. I think uh, sort of the media tropes around uh, the genocide in Rwanda um, and uh, the genocides uh, in in Bosnia. Uh, and the pushback against that in academia really helped uh, a more nuanced understanding of how ethnicity uh, isn't necessarily just this this idea of an ancient ethnic hatred which is automatically uh, linked uh, to identities but at the same time I think this this connection between identity and ideology is still quite opaque and uh, under discussed in a lot of um, a lot of research and to be perfectly honest in the book I don't uh, I, I don't spend too much time on discussing how ethnicity figures into uh, these ideologies. But I do, uh, like you said, see it more as um, a sorting mechanism. And this is how Lian Fuji describes it, uh, in the sense that it helps uh, people within their social situations to categorize uh, people as us and them, uh, to identify who the in-group is and the out-group is, and this can then also become part of uh, a genocidal ideology when these become weighted as threatening or as uh, dehumanized.
1: Thanks, Tim. And uh, I want to, you know, have us take a take a step back now to You know, the packaging of your book. Um, and, you know, you discussed the the cover image uh, early on in your book. And so can, a couple of things, I guess. Can you can you tell our listeners about where uh, the, quote-unquote, the complexity of evil comes from? Uh, did you have any internal debate over whether to use the term evil? Uh, and also, uh, can you describe for our listeners the cover image and how it relates to the content of your book? Yeah, the, the title, The Complexity of Evil, is... Um...
0: Uh, obviously, a reference to Hannah Arendt's *The Banality of Evil*, um, because uh, what Hannah Arendt uh, amazingly did uh, uh, when uh, when she first published her ideas was to really break with this idea of um, of uh, perpetrators as, um, as as psychopaths, as as, as monsters, um, as ideological uh, maniacs, and. I, and she did this in a a really great way, and without wanting to claim that I'm going to have uh, the same kind of impact that uh, Hannah Arendt obviously had with her work, but I do think that the idea of trying to systematize this and to bring in what I call the complexity of evil, and to show that, um, yes, uh, we can talk about individual motivations in individual cases, uh, and we can talk about the banality of evil, but it's also really important to see that there isn't one answer to why people participate, that there are lots of different pathways, but that they are related to each other, that that we can think about these in, in a sort of a complex causal way. But at the same time, uh, the, my concept of, well, I don't really have a concept of evil. I, I use it in the title as a as a label to tie in with Hannah Arendt, but I don't go into any of the philosophical conceptions um, of evil. Um, I, I don't really, uh, I, not only do I in the book not really engage with the term, I don't really use it very much... Um, uh, at all, because it's it does have a lot of uh, theological, philosophical c- contentions, which I don't necessarily think are particularly helpful for my uh, social scientific um, approach. Um, mm-hmm. For the most part, because I am sort of pushing back against essentializing uh, uh, violence and the perpetrators behind it and trying to think more in a much more concrete fashion about the types of, of action that people are engaging in. Um, and So the, the the label of evil uh, that inherently has something to do with a normative ascription of what this with violence means, I don't find to be particularly um, helpful. And uh, you asked about the cover uh, picture. It's um, uh, I, in the, on the first page of the book, I, I also discussed this. That I, I I chose this because I I curated an exhibition uh, together with the photographer Daniel Vetschenbach, um, in which we uh, exhibited uh, portraits of eleven uh, former Khmer Rouge um, who had uh, had some different roles within the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia in the late 1970s, and. I, uh, one of the exhibition openings that I was at, I I heard someone talking about uh, this this photo, and uh, they were talking about how you could see the evil in his eyes, and I I stood there and I looked back at this portrait photo which I'd seen many times before, and I I just I couldn't see it, I couldn't think of this person as being inherently evil and being able to see it in him, and. I I even knew much better than the the woman who had been saying this the the terrible things he'd done, but I, I think that this this sort of essentialist understanding of him as evil uh, led to, to so much internal pushback uh, by me uh, that I, I thought that I wa- I would like to have the, this picture um, on the book. Um, Obviously, the picture is um, uh, is blurry, uh, or not obviously, but I, de- I decided to have the picture blurry on the book uh, to anonymize um, uh, the person. Um, uh, theoretically, I, I would have been allowed to use this picture clearly, but I, I didn't feel comfortable um, doing that. Uh, yeah, because uh, obviously it's a, it's a very prominent... <laughs> Uh, position to have one's photo, the complexity of evil being obviously a very st- strong title, and I didn't, I didn't really want to associate a, a specific uh, person with that, uh, with that connotation.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, think you mentioned in the book that uh, had the photo been in, said maybe any other exhibit, would the person have seen evil in that photo, um, and just you know the the way that it was contextualized, it, it maybe adds to that perception. Um, and, you know, what you were just saying about um, about how you could have used a, a photo that was not blurred, um, you know, in some ways that uh, that connects to, um, you know, or I'd ask you if it connects to, uh, you know, Shell Anderson and Aaron Jesse have an edited volume uh, to which you, you contribute. Um, and in it, at the end, they include a, a code of practice. And I was wondering whether your model and their code of practice uh, might be seen as uh, complementary in some ways
0: um the the edited volume and the the code of practice uh, i think is a really uh it's a, a real testament to erin to and shell it's 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 really uh, such an interesting read and very useful and i do think that the code of practice is um a really helpful foundation for thinking about how to do ethically sound uh, perpetrator research it's it's obviously a, a minefield, uh, and uh, it's uh, and like the uh, the blurring of the picture, and how do we want to represent people? How do we uh, how do we t- want people to see individuals or not see individuals? I think this is really really key. I wouldn't necessarily say that they speak to each other in any direct ways, but I would say that because I think that what Erin um, and Shell provide is a tool for thinking about how we can do research better, uh, how we can design it, how we can conduct it, how we can write our research, represent uh, the people we've been speaking to. Whereas the model is uh, much more at a sort of an analytical level uh, how can we? Uh, try and understand better uh, the way that p- uh, perpetrators act, but I very much hope that the research underlying my model um, is uh, it, it sort of ticks all the boxes uh, of their code of practice. Um, I'm sure I didn't. I mean, I, it was uh, it was a, a long research project, and I definitely didn't do everything right. Uh, but I, it was important to me, and it continues to be important to me to take ethical considerations. Uh, into account i have on at conferences from time to time had people sort of have a much more blasé um <sighs> approach to this uh, mostly people who don't necessarily work on perpetrators interesting and that the sense that because of the actions that they've engaged in, they lose their their right to uh, be be treated in particularly ethical ways as respondents. And I, I I couldn't disagree less with that. I think that because they we have the privilege as researchers of hearing their stories, and their stories uh, obviously uh, include many really terrible things that they've engaged in, but uh, this doesn't. Absolve me of uh, of treating them uh, as humans and not dehumanizing them as as they have their victims, and I think that um, Aaron and Shell really do a, an amazing job in in that concluding chapter in bringing together these ideas and posing the right questions that we should be asking.
1: Hmm. Well, what you just said uh, relates to another question I wanted to ask you, which was, um, you know, has the taboo associated with Uh, researching and therefore what might be seen as wrongfully humanizing, although I don't agree with that, um, humanizing perpetrators, has that taboo diminished at all? I think to a certain degree
0: um, it has. I think since the 1990s with the the Goldhagen and Browning Browning debate um, and a lot of the pushback that that got in, in terms of how can we talk about perpetrators how can we do this research and all the great work that then in the early 2000s was done in rwanda i think that a lot of the taboo has uh, gone away um but at the same time i i i if i give public lectures i very strongly still feel that it's uh, it's seen as a taboo to uh to to humanize perpetrators um and it comes from a in uh an understandable position that I think many people, um, without reflecting on it, want to see themselves uh, as different to perpetrators and want to believe that uh, these are, they're a different category of people uh, and that they wouldn't have acted in these ways because they're a different kind of person. And um, I obviously hope that every person uh, who thinks this wouldn't uh, been put in, the same situations act in that way. But I am very skeptical of that. I think that uh, most uh, people would. And so I think the taboo serves a, a social function uh, or a psychological function for many people. Um, but within academia, as I said, I think that the, the, this idea of humanizing uh, perpetrators uh, is, is becoming much more uh, strongly anchored
1: um, and uh, f- for good reason. Thanks, Tim. And, um, you know, moving into your book a little but also, um, you know, just thinking about how, um, you know, you said not everyone finds themselves in the position where they are, um, you know, making decisions about whether to participate in violence or not. Which comes back to again uh, your model and the motivations, facilitative factors, and contextual conditions. And so, going into the the structure of your book, um, which I found extremely effective, you include these inner um, the interspersal of vignettes among the analysis. Um, Where did the idea for the structure of your book come from? And can you talk about these stories and how they relate to your model?
0: Yeah, I'm. I was so excited when uh, my publisher said that they they liked the idea of the vignettes, um, because, uh, like I said, the the people who I spoke to are um, people who gave me the privilege of hearing their story, um, and with the vignettes, I I feel that I'm able to give a little bit of a better idea of the people who are behind the model particularly because the 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 way the rest of the book is structured it's it has a lot of quite um uh it, it tries to systematize things it tries to show causal ordering and abstract mechanisms and so i by being able to ink and i include a lot of examples throughout the book but the 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 But they're always ripped apart, as it were, and decontextualized because it's about the specific different motivations. And with the vignettes, I hope to be able to tell uh, in a more contextualised way the stories of individual people. And obviously, unfortunately, the vignettes are only ever um, a couple of pages long. Uh, The interviews... Uh, that w- went on for several hours, often over multiple sittings. <laughs> Obviously, the transcripts are much, much longer. Um, but these are the very condensed versions of that. Um, and I'd seen uh, or I'd read about vignettes as a, as a method uh, of thinking about data. Uh, and uh, I'd read novels in which uh, you sort of have this vignette uh, approach. But I'd never seen it actually done in academia in this way. And so, I, But I thought... Why not? Uh, it, it sort of represents these people and allows us to to engage with their stories better. Um, and so it, it, I think it sort of allows this the abstract model to come to life a little bit better. Um, I can maybe sort of uh, for for one of these um, uh, vignettes sort of show how uh, how it illustrates the the model. Um, uh, so one of, the, uh, one of my interviewees, uh, who was a militiaman from Batambang province, I call him uh, Chandara uh, in, in the book. It's a pseudonym, uh, obviously, to make sure that no one uh, recognizes him. Um, he, he, he has a fascinating story, which on the, the individual level is completely unique uh, and interesting, but also a lot of the things he talks to, uh, it talks about speak to uh, broader mechanisms. So, for instance, uh, I, I, I speak about him also in the uh, in the part of the book where I talk about taking on a role and how in in-group dynamics within the perpetrator group construct a way that you think about what it means to be. A perpetrator, and so he has this really evocative um, quote where he talks about uh, when he enters, uh, when he entered, uh, when he joined the Camaros, he knew that he was entering a tiger zone. So he had to become um, a tiger and had to uh, become cruel like a tiger. And this is sort of talking to how it meant he knew that he had to take on an alternative morality, an alternative, um, and, and engage in alternative practices. Um at the same time he also talks a lot about uh how he came to the Khmer Rouge as a strategy for insur- ensuring his own security, that he'd uh and then even with as a militiaman, he felt the effects of a very coercive totalitarian system in pushing him to have to act in the way that his superiors um uh, thought this, but he also speaks about other people uh, within his group uh, and talks about how he sees other people who are the most active and uh, willing killers being the ones who are most quickly promoted uh, and and speaks this uh, to this as a motivation for some of his peers uh, to have uh, participated. Um, uh, and I, I think one of the things why I... I was fascinated about talking to him when I was doing my field research was because he also talked about a lot of the everyday group dynamics and how he in many situations managed to avoid killing um, and how the way the group was structured and the way that um, uh, the group dynamics played out on a day to day basis uh, it meant that certain people would uh, be much more involved in killing than others even if Towards the outside, it looked as if the group uh, was acting, um, and so those are the kind of some of the the things that you can pull out of the vignettes. Uh, there are also <laughs> a, a few few others as well, um, but they speak to different parts of the books and sort of of the book and bring them together in the story of of one person. Yeah.
1: yeah. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, and like I said, I think it's it's a very effective way to um, you know, as you mentioned, balance the um, sort of the data uh, with these these stories, and uh, so the example you just uh, provided was from Cambodia, and and as you mentioned before, in addition to Cambodia, um, you also um, do research on the Rwanda and the Holocaust. And uh, can you talk about why you chose these cases and whether you considered any others? Um, and also, what were um, some of the differences you found? And in terms of your model, what similarities uh, did you find?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so I. Of the three cases, uh, Rwanda and the Holocaust were uh, from the beginning clear that I would include them. Um, and this was because these are the two cases which in the perpetrator literature so far, um, there's been most work done on them. There have been excellent studies uh, by the people I was mentioning earlier who inspire me, um, Leanne Fuji, Scott Strauss, Omar McDoom, uh, Christopher Browning, um, and many others on these two cases which I knew I would be able to extract uh, a lot of the mechanisms and the ideas from. And then the idea was to try and take the, the empirical insights from these two relatively well-researched cases and the further ideas from, uh, from various different disciplines and then try, try to map it onto and see whether it works, a model that I created, uh, in a very different kind of case. Um, and actually, uh, Cambodia wasn't the first case that I considered uh, working on. Uh, I'd uh, imagined working uh, on Armenia, um, although I'd uh, mis-assumed <laughs> uh, mis- uh, how much documentation I would be able to find in the form of, uh, of uh, Original ego documents uh, by uh, by perpetrators. Um, I, there are a lot of victim accounts, but very few uh, openly available. Uh, I think there there are closed archives, uh, possibly in Turkey. Uh, which are not accessible, uh, where one could find that. Uh, I also considered working on Bosnia. Uh, This would have been preferable uh, in terms of timing, uh, given that it's a more recent case than Cambodia. But given the political uh, situation in the country and the very strong degree of politicization uh, of the violence still today, um, it, it didn't, uh, sort of my first forays into thinking about uh, doing the kind of research where I'd be doing uh, field work, uh, looking for perpetrators and speaking to them, it didn't really feel feasible. And then I, I came to Cambodia and it works out as a, as a very good case because mm, the way that the, the, the memory scape is structured today in Cambodia, many of the people who I was speaking to um, were happy to speak to me about their experiences because they um while they recognized that they they engaged in these acts uh, uh of killing and of of torture and uh, and all the other things that they 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 did they also see themselves as victims of a totalitarian regime and in that sense they were they were they also wanted to tell their stories um from from both these perspectives and that made it Easier to engage with them, um, and so from from I, I I then went to Cambodia, did a scoping trip, and realised that this would work out, and then did some uh, a longer a field trip of uh, of six months, uh, where I spent time in ten different provinces, um, and then once I'd analysed all the data, I realised that the model um, performs well uh, in explaining. Why people participate uh, in in uh, Cambodia, um, albeit with uh, differences uh, to other cases. Uh, I think the main difference uh, to other cases is the role that the that social dynamics took on. So while in the Holocaust and in Rwanda, the in-group peer pressure um, and uh, and dynamics where people wanted to be conform with their with their friendship groups uh, or with their comrades was much less strong in Cambodia because people after they were recruited were very often uh, split up from friends who they were recruited with and sent to other parts of the country uh, at the latest after training and so from that point of view people were thrown into situations with people who they didn't know um, and at the same time given uh, that the uh, the Khmer Rouge regime uh, became increasingly uh, worried or even paranoid about internal enemies within uh, the organization and were increasingly uh, purging and killing, uh, killing Khmer Rouge cadres, there was a strong degree of insecurity um, experienced. And so people didn't, engage in friendly relations uh, to the same degree uh, as we we know from other cases uh, of genocide, but because of denunciations and because of this, this fear of how one's perceived by one's superiors and uh, comrades, uh, people very much more strongly kept to themselves. So that's one of the key differences. But at the same time, I found that the model was quite helpful for me to look at this and to see this as uh, as something which wasn't so present, or how it then, the group dynamics worked much more strongly, uh, or the social isolation in this case, worked more strongly as a facilitator factor uh, rather than as a motivation as it had in, in other cases. Um, and obviously the dynamics are, are quite different. Perpet- what perpetration meant, uh, was different in Cambodia to in other cases, uh, the way that the enemy was constructed as threatening, who was seen as the enemy, the, the the types of ideology that were purported were different. But the fundamental mechanisms underlying them and how they impacted people's perceptions and their um, propensity to, to engage uh, in violence uh, remained uh, the same. Uh, and Interestingly, despite the very different situation in which people were overworked, uh, starving, uh, were losing family members themselves, uh, a lot of the opportunistic factors were actually quite um, also followed similar mechanisms, albeit uh, much more oriented towards more basic survival than actually uh, progress, be it economically or career-wise.
1: Thanks, Tim, and you know that ultimately connects to um, something in your concluding your mar- in your concluding remarks. I wanted to, to talk about, um, which is how you talk about your findings um, uh, from the application of your model to these cases, showing the potential uh, of your model for analysis of other cases. Um, do you have plans for this? I mean, one one thing that comes to mind, and maybe it's um, you know because of that. Uh, Uh, that documentary on Indonesia. Um, But I would be very interested to see your uh, model applied to the genocide or politicide in the mid sixties. Yeah. So do you have plans to um, do uh, more cases? Do you hope other scholars will adopt or adapt uh, your complexity of evil model for further study? Um, And I know your book hasn't been published for too long now, but have you been able to share your model with others and given any response to it? Um, I would love to use
0: uh use the the model and uh, adapt or and and implement it for other cases. Uh, it's interesting you refer to uh the documentary on the Indonesian genocide. You, you might be referring to Joshua Oppenheimer's The Act of Killing, which I actually uh, watched watched with my class uh yesterday uh, in class and as an introduction to uh the way uh, the politics of memory is structured in in Indonesia. And I think it would be absolutely fascinating to go to Indonesia and spend time uh, with perpetrators and talk to them. Because from my understanding, and I'm, I'm not a scholar of the Indonesian uh, genocide at all, but I do think that, um, uh, that a lot of the mechanisms uh, that i identify in the book could be useful for understanding uh understanding perpetration there um, i don't actually have uh, plans to to do this uh, myself at the moment um, mostly because i, I it was a, a, a labor of love but it did i mean the book and all the research behind it uh, was obviously a, a long project and i've i've for myself decided i need to work on something something new uh as well Uh, i'm looking more now at sort of uh, post-conflict societies and how perpetration is is constructed there that's going to be my next project but at the same time i i hope that i'll be able to to return uh to the model as part of a case study um of of in other places as well, because I believe that with the model, it gives it can be used as a heuristic, as a tool for for myself, but also for others, to, as part of larger analyses um, of of micro So it can just be one sort of part of an analysis that people use and people apply when they're looking at the micro level, when they're looking at perpetrators, uh, to be able to relatively easily and systematically. Uh, uh, Try and uh, locate uh, what, how people uh, are coming to participate, why they're doing this. I think one of the big gaps in the literature um, is on, it, at the perpetrator level, is on how motivations change over time, and this is something that I don't address in the book. Um, but I, I, I would love to be able to return. To this uh, at a later date, and in maybe a new case study, look at how um, over time, from from one act uh, of violence to another, motivations can shift. How some become more salient, other others become uh, less salient. And I have a an, an article with Jan Reinemann uh, on with a few sort of initial thoughts on this, but we we need to do a lot more empirical research. And I I believe that the way I'm understanding uh, discussions within perpetrator studies that other people find this idea of dynamism also quite interesting. So I hope that the the model will be able to be useful to people um, from that perspective and to be able to very systematically approach looking at these changes. Um, Also, because I, uh, as I very briefly mentioned earlier, I think that uh, this is key for any attempt uh, at, uh, prevention uh, at uh, at uh, useful ways of uh, thinking about um, uh, how we can use uh, uh, use the insights we have on perpetrators to actually prevent other people from becoming um, perpetrators. Um, the the response to the book so far has been. Uh, positive I think Um, uh, people seem to think that it's it's useful uh, for approaching uh, the topic uh, and that it can be used as a sort of uh, as um, yeah as a framework to look at uh, perpetrators as a as a an overlay for understanding uh, the mechanisms which underlie how this this connection between motivation um, and action
1: I'm glad it's receiving a positive response so far. I'd like to include myself in that. Um, you know, One thing I was thinking about, uh, something I've thought about before, which, you know, I guess could be a project down the road is um, just sort of comparison. I'm sorry, comparing the uh, so, sort of the, the motivations for perpetration and 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 the evolution of them, uh, possibly depending on, you know, the case and the individual, um, but also that, you know, comparing that with um, the, the motives behind uh, those who are planning, um, who are, you know, directly involved in the planning or inciting of the, the political violence or, or the genocidal violence. Because um, it just seems to me that those who are planning and inciting, they have very different motivations or objectives than the people that they are encouraging in some ways to perpetrate the violence directly against um you know, the targeted group. Uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that um but yeah.
0: I couldn't agree more that I think that this is really important. I think where sort of perpetrator studies uh, it, right at the beginning of genocide studies was very focused on the highest leaders and on individual biographies of these people. Um, and then there was a really strong push towards then in the 90s and the early 2000s towards looking at the individual perpetrators who are implementing it, the the, the low level uh, cadres. Uh, I feel that we do need to bring the the leaders back in, um, as people, uh, as people who are acting within a uh, within a context, but also a key to shaping this context. And I think that we will find some uh par- some parallel uh, motivations. Uh, I I do think that uh, social dynamics will play a a surprising role in uh, why people act in the way they do, mm, minimally in how they perceive their situations, and uh, that opportunistic motivations are obviously uh, are discussed in the literature. Um, but I, I, but I do think that ideologies are more important at these higher levels than they are uh, lower down uh, the chain of command, as it were. Um, but I think it. <laughs> It is an open question to what degree that is the case, and I think it would be it would be a useful endeavour to to take uh, the model, take the book, and and see whether it also works for those uh, in power. Uh, it's um, as an open question, um, and and uh, what we can then learn from that uh, for for prevention, but also for just uh, for for analysis
1: of of the violence dynamics, I think could be quite uh, quite insightful. Agreed. um well tim as we as we come near our our close here um you know towards the end of your book you you talk about the potential application of your model to other forms of violence, and you know that right now um you know, it would be you know purely speculative um to come to any conclusions on on its uh, applicability, but if you were to start with genocide and expand on the use of your model from there, say outward from genocide. Is there a, a form or type of violence that you think makes the most sense to apply the model to next, outside of, say, genocide studies? I think so. I've I have <laughs> I've thought about this
0: um, quite a lot over the the last couple of years in terms of well, what 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 else can we we do with this model and. Particularly because the literatures are very structured according to the types of violence, and so we have sort of terrorism studies, we have genocide studies, we have civil war studies, um, and that I, I do genuinely think there needs to be more conversations happening between these um, these disciplines. But I, but they are distinct these types of violence. So, but I think that what what the model would be most useful in thinking about would be group based. Um, forms of violence, because I think that this is so key uh, to, to genocide, um, that that they are uh, implemented to the perpetration of genocide, that they're, they're implemented always as parts of groups uh, with differing amounts of organisational structure, and that they're embedded within some kind of ideological framework. And so I think um, for this possibly um, riots uh, and you know, pogroms and riots could be a useful uh, uh, universe of cases to, to look at uh, next and I actually have just started a, a new research project on uh, riots. It's looking at it from a, a different perspective and a, a much more, uh, sort of, I'm no longer looking at the, the late 1970s uh, in Cambodia, but on uh, Twitter uh, and Twitter data and looking at riots. And I hoped as part of this project also be able to ch- see whether um, we can understand a little bit more about why people participate in riots and programs uh, as violent action uh, and see whether the model would also be uh, applicable um, there. Uh, obviously, the time. <laughs> The kinds of data that I have uh, doing Twitter analysis is not necessarily going to allow me to do the same kinds of analyses that sitting down with someone for uh, multiple sessions of several hours uh, gives the kind of data. But I think that creatively, hopefully, uh, over the next couple of years uh, with my team, we'll be able to, uh, to, as one part of the project, uh, look at that. Yeah. But I also think that it could be useful to look at um, uh, motivations in civil wars, in terrorism. Uh, I, it's purely speculative, but um, there are lots of parallels between, at the individual level, how people perceive their situations, how people perceive the other who they're killing. Um, and I don't see why it, it wouldn't be useful to use the model and look at that. And then if it all then to see what the differences um are between the forms of violence
1: sure i, I agree uh with that um I, mean, I think there's also the element uh you mentioned the other of um at least for framing for participation purposes there oftentimes can be a sort of in group and an out group um in, in terms of the uh you know the, the violence um so it, well you uh <laughs> you kind of got, got ahead of me on my uh i like to usually ask in my closing um you know, what uh, my interviewee uh, is working on currently. Um, You you mentioned a couple of different uh, research um, directions you're going in in post-conflict society with with, with the riots. Um, Are are these articles, are these books, are these things that um, our listeners can keep their eye out for? So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm working on
0: two fields. One is uh, the politics of memory. Uh, in post-conflict uh, or post-genocide societies. And there are t- I'm working on uh, a book uh, myself and a co-authored book uh, with four colleagues. Uh, four of us, Five of us are trying to write a book together uh, in which wow. we look at... Co- <laughs> It's going remarkably well. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) They're four absolutely wonderful colleagues. Uh, So it it means it's such quite fun writing together where we look at cultural uh, heritage uh, and how uh, the politics of memory contributes to peace uh, in in uh, post-conflict societies, um, and then uh, the other um, larger project that is literally just starting uh, at the moment uh, is looking at uh, digital dynamics uh, of violence. And here I'm straying further afield from from genocide, and it's it's focusing on riots. Um, But again, I think that this is this makes it interesting to try and see how different forms of violence uh, at the individual level um, are uh, are perceived, um, what it means for motivations, what it means for uh, discourses that emerge, Um, and so I'm I'm excited to
1: to see what kinds of parallels uh, we can
0: we can find in that project.
1: Right. Well. Tim, thank you so much for your time. I I do look forward to reading your forthcoming work, and uh, when when these books come out, if I'm still doing this, perhaps we can we can do this again.
0: Oh, wonderful! (laughs) Thank you so much for having me on.